Okay, if you've got a Bible, please could you turn to the book of Numbers 21. We're looking at the life of Moses. And we've come to a thing called the snaky thing. I don't know whether you're like me, but uh, I ate the blooming things. And uh, I, I'd like you to know that I was going to play a trick on you and then forgot. So what I was going to do on Saturday, I was going to go down the town and buy some of those plastic things. You know, have you seen those? Really? And at a certain point in the sermon that I've got here, that well, I was going to lob a few and see how you reacted. And then I forgot. So either it's the grace of God or my memory is just getting old. And, and just, but you didn't get it. So at some point, you just need to scream as if I did it anyway, Okay. Okay, Numbers 21, verses 1 to 9. When the Canaanite, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel. And he took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites and they devoted uh, them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go round the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Heard that one before? Uh, There is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery servants among the people. and And they bit the people. So that many people of Israel died. That was when you were going to get it, okay? And the Lord sent fiery servants. That's it. Thank you. That was the point. Okay. But I forgot. Sorry, Phil. It's all right. Just don't be frightened. Okay. That was when I was going to do it. And they bit the people. So many people of Israel died, but you didn't because I forgot the fiery snakes. Ha! <laughs> Well, serpents, oh, right, where the heck am I? (laughs) And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, and, and he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make fire, make a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. That's the story. Uh, But if you uh, look into uh, Numbers uh, chapter 20, before you get to Numbers 21, you will find it... um, quite sad and extremely moving in the midst of what would be for Moses arduous leadership in an incredible place called the wilderness, bless you. I'll get a real snake next time. 
I, I don't sneeze quietly either, do I? No. But, see, and what, what you get in the midst of Moses leading these people, in the midst of probably one of the most difficult places to lead a people through, you get Moses suffering family bereavement, the loss of his sister. And you think about this. At this point, when Moses is losing his sister, there is opposition, there are complaints from the people of God, there is intense frustration from them towards him, there is a spirit of, of, of rebellion, he loses his temper, so he shows disrespect for God. God says to him, you'll never go into the promised land. And he loses his sister. Then on top of that, not only does he lose his sister, but then he loses his brother, Aaron. The very people that would have been closest to him, maybe that he would have been able to go off in a tent to and just perhaps put his perspective right with them, have suddenly... And almost appallingly, really, have just been taken from him. And he has got to lead these people through. And as you reflect on that, well, as I reflected on Numbers 20, <clears throat> I actually felt quite encouraged. It sounds really strange, but I did. Because sometimes, I don't know where you think like this, but we can put, unrealistic expectations on, on, on ourselves and the Christian life. We can, we can know a little bit and, and we, we can live through what it means when the hymn writer says to, to fight the good fight. We can often think, can't we, that leaders have blissful marriages and wonderful family lives and are completely at unity and love and peace with the people that they serve and lead. You can often think, well, leaders don't understand me because, you know, they never face opposition and I seem to face all the opposition, they never face it. They often think that maybe where the opposition comes in regard to leadership is there's this wonderful leader praying away in a cupboard somewhere and they're having to oppose Satan and the world on behalf of the people. But actually, they live in a sheltered life and don't know what it is to face reality. It's, it's, a, it's good I get sneezes and mobile phone tunes. If you, can I just suggest with your mobile phone, you improve your ringtone. Uh, can I? Because I think if you're going to have it ring in services, we need a worship song, don't we? So Phil can arrange that for you. That would be good. I think sometimes that there is this huge difference between what people think that leaders go through. And here in the middle of it, you see... Moses having to cope with, in a leadership position, having to cope with a double dose of bereavement. 
And if you take a look at number twen- number tw- n- Numbers chapter 20, and you look at it and you see, here's this man, Moses, with actually loads of problems, who is still leading, still serving, still faithfully fighting the good fight, but he's also balancing that with incredible emotional difficulties. And maybe you're discouraged because you think you'll never be like Moses. But here, you're exactly like Moses. And every one of us is exactly like Moses. And I just want to say to you this. Bereavement of any sort is an incredible emotional pressure. And we must never underestimate what loss brings to us. We mustn't do that. We must know that Moses suddenly, for just these moments, felt like, I have nothing, nothing. But what Moses had discovered is this, is that the Lord can help you fight the good fight in the wilderness and with the responsibilities that you have. That the Lord is able, if you are able to go to him and say to him, oh Lord, I have lost my sister, my my brother, I'm in the wilderness. They are behaving like this. If you are able to do that, then you can know the strength that Moses knew at this point in his life. And it's sometimes, it is when you don't go, when actually all these things come inside, they, they go in here, they go deep, and that what happens is bit by bit, you become the man and woman that God did not design you to be. Because God is able to take you from the bereavement, able to help you to fight the good fight and to help you still lead the people that God is entrusted to do. So I want to say this to you. If you've known bereavement and stood with the responsibility, whether that's just as a husband or a wife or at work or anything like this, I want to say this. You're standing with a great man. And a great man in heaven understands exactly what you are going through. That one is Moses, but certainly Jesus does too. And as we come to Numbers 21, and the first nine verses, it begins with a huge challenge to Israel. There are some people after him again. And it continues after that with a great victory. And then it continues after that with this familiar whining and grumbling and complaining that seems to go on with the people of God. And eventually we come through to a a judgment and then we come through to a salvation. And after the victory that they had in the early verses of of, of, uh, Numbers 21, you would have expected people to have been grateful, wouldn't you? Magnificent victory, powerful army. Let's be grateful. Well, okay, we can do that. But maybe just 
do no, for a couple of minutes, huh? And do you know that what? Gratefulness helps us value victories. And, and we need to be far more grateful than we are. I realized after a while that, that you'd all gone quiet this morning and that I was a blithering idiot in front of you. I wasn't. Excuse me this. I was a fool, but I just realized what Jesus did. I was grateful and I forgot you. I'm very sorry about that, but I just did. You meant at that point nothing and Jesus meant absolutely everything and I was grateful and I couldn't sorry stop myself. And then I realized after a while that in the middle of it, you weren't with me. But I want to say this, you did not experience the release that I, I was just so grateful and it was wonderful. It was so releasing not me, come on guys and here we've got this magnificent victory and we can't survive be grateful people it is so releasing it is the most releasing thing you can do and here's the lesson you'd think they'd learn Israel when you pray and you do what God tells you you will experience a victory and then you just praise God in gratitude. But no, they don't do that. <laughs> they don't learn. And perhaps we was wrong when we look at it in retrospect to expect that they might have done that. Because the children of Israel were not grateful. And they didn't turn over a new leaf. And they didn't figure out the best way of walking with God. And then they begin to complain. Perhaps their complaining has got a point. Because apparently, Lawrence of Arabia, that's T.E. Lawrence and not the film that you've watched in black and white, by the way, the real guy. He actually took the same journey that these guys were on. He thought this would be a good idea, good plan. So he took the same plan. It's not the same time, but it is the same thing. So he goes on the same journey, and this is what he says. It's a little bit after Moses, but it's the same journey. He says this of the journey that these guys are going through. Let me just uh, read his words. He says this. um, Where do I start? He says... We went through the same land that Israel was going through. And as we went uh, the long way round Edom and into the promised land, I found that this was a place of hopelessness and of sadness deeper than the open desert that we had just crossed. There was something sinister, there was something actively evil in this snake-devoted land, proliferant of salt water, barren of palms and brushes, in which neither served for gracing nor even firewood. In fact, Lawrence Arabia describes them encountered hooded vipers, cobras and black snakes in such numbers that men feared to walk in the night. Now you think about this. Magnificent victory. Little snake. Oh, I don't like snakes. Oh, well, let's just get it. Magnificent victory. Little snake. And, that, and suddenly they've gone. And Israel grumbled. 
And they seem to be on this perpetual thing where they will just go through victories, God will deliver them, and then I will moan. It's just the way that it was. And as I'm looking at this, I would have thought, I thought this, why have I got all the sermons that, that in this series that talk about Israel moaning? So I want to imagine, I'm, I'm moaning at what I've got to preach on. Dave Simpkins was moaning last week, and I thought, I have got all the moaning ones. And I thought, I didn't look at the next one, so I am moaning about moaning. And in the middle of this, I felt that God speak to me. And I felt that what they did is that they hadn't learned. And that they are acting just like me. And I realized that we're actually never very creative about our own sin and our own weakness. We actually go back to the same patterns and so do I. However patient God is. However gracious God is with me, I go back to the same things time and time again. The old cycles, the old things that pick me up, the old things that make me stumble, there again and again. And I'm in my upstairs bedroom grumbling over grumbling. And Callie will tell you, I can grumble. (laughs) She wasn't there, but I was there. Until I realized that these people were describing my sin. And that actually what was in front of me was something for me. That God, what God was teaching them, he was actually teaching me. And he was giving me an opportunity through a nation of several million things to learn a lesson. So I started this sermon by thinking this, Israel, I owe you an awful lot. A whole nation molded by God so that this fella, born 1956, can learn one lesson. So I looked at Israel and I thought, when I get to heaven and I manage to just talk to them, and there may be a few of them, I might be able to say, thank you, Israel, and I want to encourage you, when you are reading the Bible, not to just look at these guys as stories, but to see that God molded them so that you and I can learn that every moment, every bit of time, every situation, every tiny little detail that they won and struggled, had a victory, was for me. And for you, so that you can become like Jesus. They are not just stories in the desert. They are real experiences so that I can become much better than they ever were. Isn't that the grace of God? That God would take six million, seven million people and mold them so somebody can be changed. And that person is you and I. Extraordinary. So... Here's the problems. They've come this way, look. And then if you look up this route here. Oh, no, I've got one of them, haven't I? Okay, here we go. Boop. Hey. (laughs) Sorry. Here they go, look. They come all this way up here. And they are about to go into Canaan, look. There's the spies. Oh, look, land flowing in the mountain. No, there's giants. Back down here. And then they're going to come all the way back down here. And all the way up there's Mount Hor, where we're going, Hormaluk, Mount Hor. Here's Edom. So here it is. Here's the journey, look. 
the way up here. There we go. Let me just show you one thing before we move on. If you don't hear from God and get your life right, this is what happens. See that? God gives you an opportunity to walk in. Most of us have more. And you go, walk in, no giants. Okay, walk around then. Okay? So, here we go. And this is Mount Hoare. Can you, and look at this. Just look at that. Here. There's no McDonald's. So let's firstly look at then the gravity of Israel's sin. Israel dishonors God. They virtually blaspheme God in this passage. Israel's ungrateful, even in the face of extraordinary generosity and amazing provision. And yet we see that they are cheesed off. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There is no food. There is no water. And we loathe this worthless food. There are five things that Israel does. Do them short. Firstly, Israel becomes impatient. No, we would never do that. I, I can see patience exuding from the floor. It's understandable. They could just, if they could just go through the land of Eden, Canaan's not that far away. But they can't. They've got to go the long way round and now they're fed up. They've got to go through a desert region that is worse than the desert region that they've just been in. But is it excusable? I don't think it is excusable because what we do is that we often blame God, don't we, for the mess that we have got ourselves in. So what had happened here is the spies had gone into the land. They told them it was good land. The majority of spies had come back. Two of the spies had said, let's do this. The rest had said no. And so the party went the other way. And then they say, well, God, no, it's your fault. It's your fault. And sometimes our impatience is not something that is of what God has done. But our impatience is something that we have not done in response to God. So we're living in the consequences and we're saying, why hasn't God done this? And that is because we've had opportunities to put it right and we just haven't responded to it. Secondly, I want you to notice how they profanely and disrespectfully and irrelevantly, irreverently, sorry, speak against God and Moses. I don't know whether you think like this. Who do these people think that they are? Um, you know, firstly, God, Moses is God's appointed one. But also, you know, God's God. God's God. This is the guy, this is the man, this is the person who provided manna and quail, clouds and fire, parted the sea, killed Egyptian kings, allowed them to come out of Egypt, and they speak against him. Now, of course, I would never do such a thing. I would never, ever dream to question God that what I was going through, he could do a bit more better in the realm of. 
But sometimes, what was Israel's problem? Israel's problem here was this, that they thought they could do the job of God better than God could do the job of God. That's really dicey ground, isn't it? And we must come out sometimes off that position and ask ourselves the question, who is the best at being God? Me or him? Thirdly, they have the gall to call in question God's plan of redemption. Basically, they say to God, this plan that you've got you know, out of Egypt and into the promised land, I just want to say this to you. I know you'll understand this. Please treat this with the grace in which it is given. It's rubbish. You know, I could do, we could do this better than this. Because they say to him, what have you brought us up into, out of Egypt into this wilderness? There's no food, water here. This is a bad plan. It's not a good plan. This is not a good road. This is a bad road. You should have left us in Egypt. Salvation is the best plan, but it's not always the easiest road. And when we're leading people to Christ, it's no good saying, come here and this is a better life. No. It's, it's come here because what Jesus did on the cross for your sins. It isn't come here and suddenly you will, you, you know, the, the faith and prosperity, you will get this. No. You may not get everything. You will get eternal life, but in this world you might not get everything. And sometimes we sell a pattern of salvation that actually is not in the Bible. We need to say salvation is to do with my sin and the fact that he became sin for me. That's it. I am a sinner saved by an amazing Jesus Christ in a cross. Full stop. And if I never get these things, Jesus has still died for me. And that is it in its nutshell. And here what Israel fell into the trap was that I want salvation with trappings. I want it with the turkey, the roast beef and the the Yorkshire pudding and the cranberry sauce and the bottle of wine and and the party hat and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's the way that I want to be. I want fizz bangwala. It will be fun. God, be a Christian. It's lovely. And then when it's not like that, you say, bad plan, bad plan, bad plan. No. No. Salvation is there. The idea of the plan was not yours, it's in the Bible. Fourthly, I think it's fourthly. Is that what I said? Yes, fourthly. They doubt God's ability to provide for them in the wilderness. Here it is. Would you say this? But uh, just, there's no food and water here. Pardon? Do you know, sometimes we cannot see what God does because we've got consumed with ourselves. Quails? Oh, no, can't see them any longer. Bread from heaven? No, can't see that. Forgot? No, that's not there. Water out of the rock? No, no water out the rock. There's no food here. And it's worthless. And that can what can happen when we get lost in sin. We cannot see what Jesus has done for us can't see we just lose it and you because that when you think about it, it's mad isn't it they must have fallen across quails i mean it tells us when the bread was there it was all over the place you couldn't help but see but could they see no because they've lost what god is doing fifthly they say not only did they do that they say this 
We loathe that food. I think at this point, take out now. Go four things, don't go fifth. We loathe this. We loathe it. Ah, I want to go, shh, just help. So what do they do? They don't acknowledge God's power. They don't appreciate his generosity. They don't recognize his mercy. They don't accept his sovereignty. They don't trust his word, and it's all rolled into one. And that's how sinful their sin is. Except I realize that I do the same thing. That they are me. That every time I decide that this is what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to do it God's way, I'm going to do it my way, I do it exactly the same thing as Israel, and I don't learn Israel's lesson. Do you know, my dad used to say this, it used to annoy me. I can say this now because he's no longer with us, but when I get to heaven, he'll probably still annoy me saying the same thing. Because you know like you are when when you're going through that teenage thing, and and you think, I know best here. So you sort of tell your dad out to dad, don't you? My dad was six foot something, and I'm just a squirt. So it was stupid, you know, really what I did. My dad used to have those little tiny things. He was a very quiet man, believe it or not. So if you'd have met, him, if you'd have met me and him, you'd have thought, what? <laughs> but he was, he was a very quiet man. And he used to say this sort of thing. He used to say, Nigel, remember when you are pointing one finger at me that there is four fingers pointing back at yourself? <laughs> Do you remember that one? It was another way of saying, you know, it's easy to see the speck in my eye and miss out the plank in your your own. And before we look at Israel, we have to come back and see ourselves and the way that we are in regard to them. And they then have to face the judgment of God. He sends fiery serpents. Okay. So that many people in Israel died. So here we see the judgment of God. The people sin, the people's sin of complaining and all that. So what does God do? He sends them more adversity. And the people of God say, say, things are really bad. And God said, you think that's bad? Catch this. And it's true, you just think it's bad because that's what happens. You know, there are things that are really bad in the desert, the wilderness. Okay, snakes. You'd think you'd go, things are really bad. I'm so sorry that things are really bad. I just want to identify with you in every possible way and have a snake. <laughs> it just seems wrong. But I'm going to remember my dad. Sometimes, I don't know whether you've ever worked this out, that you only that God gives you an opportunity to learn a little lesson. And you don't learn the little lesson, so you get the big one that you have to then cope with. Have you, have, has that ever happened to you? Learn the little lesson. Oh, it's only a little lesson. Okay, big one. And that's what you get. And it's the same. My dad used to say this to me. Back to my dad. No, he's dead, but I can record it. He used to say this. Nigel, we can either do this the easy way or the hard way. Which way do you want to do this? And I used to think this. Hard way. Bush. And he got a massive hand me dadad. I once, I once was playing football with David Joyce on the lawn. 
He was in goal. I was out on our little lawn. The flowers are behind it. And I kicked the ball towards him. It bounced back. It hit me on the face. And I said the F word. I went, you effing. And by the time I got to the end of the sentence, my dad, who was cleaning an upstairs window, had come down the window, through the stairs, out of the kitchen, round the back. And I hadn't got to the, to the finish of the statement. And he came. Bush. So I said, you effing. <laughs> And, all I could, and there I am lying on the floor and I didn't even finish the statement because because if you don't learn the easy way you will learn the hard way my dad says so and God says so because if you don't learn the easy way you'll get the s- it's just simple why do we make it so difficult ah oh. See, your dads have all said the same thing, yes. Did I say it to you? Oh, did I? Oh. There is a hymn that, as a good strict Baptist, that they used to make me sing. I'm now saying make me sing because they did. This is how the hymn writer, and I used to think about, I don't know whether you think Phil's looking at me or Bill, when you were singing hymns, who's Brian here? No. I used to sing these hymns and I stand a word of it. (laughs) This is the hymn. If thou but suffer God to guide me. This helped us in worship. This was written by Catherine Winkworth, originally from a German guy. Do you remember this? German guy wrote it. Catherine Winkworth wrote it back in English. But it was, please stand, we're going to sing, If thou but suffer God to guide me. I can't be bothered, it's going to kill me. <laughs> this is the child singing. And it went like this, this is the second verse. I th- it says, What can these anxious cares avail thee? These never ceasing moans and sighs. You can tell this was really worshipful. What can it help if thou bewail thee? For each dark moment as it flies... Our cross and trials do but press the heavier for our bitterness. (laughs) (laughs) You don't realize how liberated you are. Let me translate this. Let me translate this. I'll try my best. What good can your anxiety and worry do? What good is your constant moaning and sighing about your trials? What help is it if you just simply regret your situation or bemoan every hard thing that comes along? Our crosses and trials, the hard providences that come into our lives, our crosses and trials only get heavier if we are all the bitter about them. That's what it's about. Let me ask you the question. Do you want to do it the easy way or the hard way? Let me give you a bit of advice from my dad. Do it the easy way. It hurts less. Okay. The people respond to God's judgment. I just think it's funny because they die. Oh, no. God's... (laughs) God's just judgment comes upon the people in the form of poisonous snakes and the people die. 
Verse 7, they say, We have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord uh, to take the serpents from us. So God, in his mercy, comes to them. But I want you to notice this. I want you to notice it's not a blame culture. I sinned because you said. So it's you. It's not me, it's you. The route through to blessing is always acknowledgement of our sin, not just acknowledgement of somebody else's sin. We live in a society today where our church values are beginning to change. So I am sanctified because I am released because of the sin that Rupert did. So that's the way that it is. Rupert is, is sinful against me. He's a rat bag. He's naughty. He's awful. He's all that sort of stuff. And I am like I am because of him. Rupert, it's your fault. <laughs> and basically, that is the culture in which we are building church. That is the culture. And what happens is this that we have now uh, imbibed a blame culture which is now in all sorts of different things if you think about it in life. And we are living that. So I am released according to how many people sin or don't sin against me. How are these people released? They say, we have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord, we have done this, pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. And until we realize and stand before God and say, I've sinned, please forgive me. We will not experience the deliverance that God has got for us. We will experience something that is momentary, that is small, that is just something. But we will not experience the complete miracle of snakes being from us Because we are trying to blame everybody else. This was the problem. They blamed Moses. They blamed God. They came to the conclusion that the only way of deliverance was to say, we have sinned. And we as 21st, sorry, I've quoted this there, 21st century church need to recover the doctrine of this. If we want to know complete deliverance from things. We need to stand up, be counted and say, I have sinned. I therefore will repent. I therefore will ask for forgiveness. I will know the grace of God from me. Stand up, be counted. Rupert, you're free. It's me. There's a guy called, a Scottish congregational theologian and pastor called P.T. Forsyth. And he was reflecting on this. And he used an illustration of a joiner or a carpenter. This is what he said. The joiner, when he glues together two boards, keeps them tightly clamped until the cement sets. So with their calamities and depressions and disappointments that crush us, their design is to push us closer to God and in contact with God. The pressure will be kept on us until our union with God is set, so that God, like a divine carpenter, will press us together, so that in trials, he is stuck with us. So, they didn't take the easy way, they took the hard way. They ran to him, and then God provided mercy. It's a strange thing that they do, 
if you look at this, the, the provision of God is bizarre, to say the least. Because what God could have done at this point is he could have said, fire, couldn't he? He could have said that. He could have said, okay, snakes in the desert. That would have been impressive, wouldn't it, from heaven? Let me just get the divine flamethrower out. But he says this, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses makes a bronze serpent, he sets it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anybody, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. Now the problem with this is that there's a sermon in this and I've got to not go there. But I want, to know, I want you to first notice the solution seems to have no human explanation to it. It is quite odd. And the reason that it is quite odd is that you and I know that you and I can get into a pattern in the way that we think that success will come. That we think the way that... If I do this... So if I do this, and then I do that, and then I do the other, and then wisdom that, and then there's the other, God will come. And whatever church and whatever background you come, whether you belong in a charismatic church or whether you've got an Anglican church, there are formulas that people think that God will come. And here's the truth. God will come when God's ready to come in the way that he wants to do it, and he'll do it his way, not ours. Now, I think that's both encouraging, but it's dead scary. Because it means that, you know, God asks you to do some strange things. And he says to Moses, I want you to make this thing on a pole. Well, okay. And I think sometimes we mustn't get lost into formula. But there's some interesting. Now, for the ones that like a little bit of the the technical stuff, this is for you, and then I'll come back and, and carry on for me, okay? Archaeologists and Old Testament commentators actually go wild at this. Why? Because, and they, they go wild because of this bronze snake on a pole and in regard to the solution of God's sin. And some of them point out that they've discovered at Kamar, near this area, an old Midianite sanctuary in which there was what? A copper snake on a pole. There is one. Ooh. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the archaeologists get thrilled at this, but have forgotten the purpose of it. Yeah? And what I found funny was that I've got several commentaries on numbers, and they all commentate this. And you think, I'm really pleased that I know there's a copper thing on a pole. What do you want me to do? Have a pilgrimage and have a look at it? And it's almost as if that becomes a fascinating thing. They go on, and they say, guess what? Others think that Israel, there would have been experience of worshipping snakes. What did they worship in Egypt? One of the things, snakes. And perhaps that God is about to point out, uh, make a point about the Egyptian gods. He's sort of rubbing his finger in their, their nose and sort of saying, well, there you go, that's what I think of your gods. I just think, I'm really impressed with your brains. And you've got a brain better than me. But I do think you've missed the point somewhat. Let me just walk through this with you together. I know this is simple. Please do forgive me. What is on the pole? A snake. 
What is the snake doing there? They are killing people. Why are the snakes killing people? It's the judgment of God. What's the bronze snake on the pole a picture of? It is a picture of God's judgment because of Israel's sin. That's what it is. It's just a sign. Next, isn't it interesting that in other Hebrew sacrifices, when the representative was being prepared to be slain in your place for your sin, what did the head of the family have to do? He had to touch the representative sacrifice. He had to touch whatever was going to be sacrifice. Here's the difference. Here, all they have to do is not touch They don't have to do anything. All they have to do is look. They look away from themselves and they look to this symbol. Don't do anything. Just look. Don't look. What is God saying? He's saying, you contribute nout. That's one for Bill. You contribute zilch, nothing, nil. All you do is look. Is this not the essential act of saving faith? Are we not looking here at how we are saved? Looking to Jesus. Looking away from ourselves. Doing nothing. But looking to Jesus. Looking away from our good deeds looking away from our bad deeds, doing nothing but looking to Jesus and looking to him alone. This story comes up again in the New Testament. Jesus meets Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asks him how he must be born again. And... Jesus had said to him before he had entered into a conversation, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you remember that? You can all probably quote it. But before he said that, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. In other words, Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as the people had to look at that bronze snake and simply trust in God's word, that if they looked at this snake, they would be saved. We also, you must look to Jesus and look at the cross and to him alone. And if you do that, you will be saved. That was it. Isn't it daft? Isn't it a marvel? But of course, there's something different between a snake and Jesus. Let me try and explain. The bronze snake was a picture of God's vehicle for just judgment on Israel for their sin. But the cross of Jesus is a picture of God's just judgment on sin. But there's a problem. If it's just a picture of God's judgment on sin like the snake, who would it be on? The cross. It would be me. That actually what's... I should be on the pole and not Jesus. 
If it were a picture of God's just judgment, it would be you and me, and, but it's not. There's a substitute. There's God's own son. And he's bearing a judge judgment that you deserve. So what is extraordinary here is that you are looking at a snake in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you should be looking at me and you. But we're not. We're looking at somebody else. We're looking at Jesus. Because in the final analogy and analysis, the cross is the only a picture of God's just judgment. It's not only that. It is a picture of his lavish mercy in providing a substitute to everybody that will look and live. Here it is. In the desert. What happens if I get bitten? What happens if I get bitten by sin? How do I do that? If you're not a Christian, you've been bitten by sin. It's bitten you. It's hurt you. It's caused you to do things that you now regret. Sin hurts. Sin bites your toes. And they're bitten in the desert. I'm in a wilderness. I've been bitten. And they say, just look at the snake. How, if you are not a Christian, how do you overcome this issue of being sinful? Because actually, it's, the Bible says that you were bitten by your sin from birth. And that you've continued to be bitten by your sin. And sin has caused you caused it to be a great pain in your life and it is quite simple you just look to Jesus you just take your eye off that and you just look at that and you think look what he's done on the pole for me I can be free Jesus is saying to Nicodemus who is very confused about becoming a Christian and how it happens How is a person born again? Well, they're dead and they're blind. But they have to realize that although they are dead with their snake bite, and although they can't see how to get out of it, they just have to look and live. And live. And I was dead. I had the venom of sin in me. The venom of sin was coursing through my veins and it was leading me to hell. And Jesus died so that I can be forgiven, so that I can receive mercy, so that I can understand grace, so that all, and all that I have to do is not go and do anything. I don't have to touch the pole. I don't have to have indulgences or anything like that. I don't have to, well, where's the cross any longer? And this person in this country's got a fragment of it. And if I touch it, I'm saved. I don't have to go to Liverpool Cathedral when they produce some sort of bone of a foot of somebody and touch the casket and I will be free. No, not at all. I just have to look and live. I look at it go, what? Magnificent. I'm free. And I can live. I can live. Live.
What should you do, Nicodemus? Nicodemus says, he said, Jesus says to him, verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What does that mean? What does that involve? It just involves sometimes shouting, I can see it. I can see it. Can you see it? Can you see the cross? Can you see this wondrous thing that Jesus did? Do you see him on a pole? Do you see that how he's dealt with your sin and, and all the stuff that came with it? Do you look at that and live? Or are you looking for something else? You can't live with anything else. Look at the snake and live. If you look at something else, you don't live. You don't live. You look at him and live. That's why, that's why it was thrilling, guys. Because we just kept coming back to Jesus again and again and again. And I'm ever so sorry for being a book. But time after time, the words kept coming and going, I'm living. And if you don't look to him, you can't live. It is simple as that. You know, it, it is the cross. What about tomorrow? The cross. What about Wednesday? The cross. What about next week? The cross. Why? You can live. It is simple as that. Every time you take your feet, oh no, it's, it's the worry and I need deliverance from this and then I need this ministry from this and, and if I can do that and follow that pattern, no, 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 not ever, not, not, nothing. Why? It is the cross. It is the only thing that you can focus on that could cause you to live and if you are in problems today, the reason is you're not looking at the cross. But here's the invitation. You can look at it and live. Live. Do you know what it is to feel alive? Don't live dead. Live life because of Jesus. What was the song that we sang? 